0: Has crossed like two hot wires.
1: We are just about
2: the friendliest folks you'd ever want to meet. That's Bonnie. I'm sorry, I was looking for Maud. Everyone has the right to make an ass out of themselves. You can't let the world judge you too much. That woman, she took my car. This
0: is
3: Bonnie and Maud, the film podcast with Xenia Yaroche and Eleanor Kagan. Welcome to Bonnie and Maude, the film podcast. I'm Eleanor Kagan. This is Xenia Yarosh, And um, we are coming to you live from Videology in Williamsburg. Uh, this is our first live podcast. And um, to commemorate the occasion, us, plus a very brave audience, survived <laughs> a screening uh, just now of Carrie. Carrie is the 1976 teen horror movie directed by Brian De Palma, based on the 1974 novel by Stephen King, his first published. He was about
0: 25 when he wrote it, so that's an interesting context.
3: And the film Carrie stars Sissy Spacek um, as Carrie White and Piper Laurie as her mother, Margaret White. Um, And both actresses were nominated for Academy Awards for their roles, which is actually pretty rare for the horror genre. In 1988, Carrie was made into the now infamous Broadway musical, (laughs) if you can believe that. Which did not do very well, as far as I know. I believe it is the biggest flop in Broadway history. And um, how could we forget, in 1999, The Rage, Carrie 2. Carrie is a doomed Cinderella story. It's at once hilarious and terrifying. Um, our hearts break for Carrie, yet we know if we piss her off, we are all screwed. Um, so joining us to discuss Carrie is uh, our lovely guest, Tenebris Kate. Hey, good evening. Thank you for joining us. Uh, Kate is an artist, a writer, a regular contributor to Ultraviolet Magazine, makes a webcomic called Super Coven. On her blog, she examines everything lurid, weird, and fantastique. So welcome, Kate. Thanks for having me, ladies. So I was thinking before we jump into a discussion of De Palma's film, um, we could take a moment to talk a little bit about how and why Stephen King first wrote this novel. Ksenia, you read the book. I did. Uh, I just finished it yesterday,
0: and I would definitely highly recommend it to anyone. It, it provides a little bit more of a context to the characters. And it actually has a slightly different ending. But in terms of the idea, um, as far as I read, Stephen King was sort of inspired by some of the students that he remembered from high school. Two girl outcasts, uh, one of whom actually came to school one day dressed completely differently after, being, you know, after wearing the same clothes throughout high school. And she was made fun of even more than before, because she was trying to change. And they were a little bit frumpy. And you know, kids made fun of them and didn't like them.
3: Um, something I remember you telling me is that uh, Stephen King started writing this book and was having a lot of trouble getting into the mind of a teenage girl. Because obviously, he himself was never a teenage girl. I think he said, <laughs> I wasn't even sure if I wanted to get into the mind of a teenage girl. <laughs> right, exactly. And so he threw the book away, and his wife fished it out of the trash. Yeah, he and started a couple
0: of pages, threw it away, his wife fished it out, and said, you should do this, and helped him with the book,
3: Yeah, which I find kind of inspiring. Um, I found a quote from Stephen King that I thought was really interesting. He said, Carrie is largely about how women find their own channels of power and what men fear about women and women's sexuality. Which is only to say that, writing the book in 1973 and only out of college three years, I was fully aware of what women's liberation implied for me and others of my sex. The book is, in its more adult implications, an uneasy masculine shrinking from a future of female equality. Which is kind of crazy. Another quick context is that he did work as a janitor
0: briefly and saw a tampon in the shower, a used tampon, at one point. And I think that sort of made him fearful. <laughs> <laughs> he was and
3: traumatized by the experience. Yeah, and inspired at least one scene in the movie. And so why don't we start off um, talking a little bit about that shower scene that the movie opens with.
1: I think it's a beautifully done scene, um, I think it starts real lurid, I think you go in and you go, oh, I know what I'm in for, this is going to be great, <laughs> there's all these ladies and they're without their kit and they're soapy <laughs> and then all of a sudden, you it, it kind of inverts it because you see this woman's hands and they're reaching towards the zone mm-hmm. that the men are thinking about and they pull up and it's the most ghastly thing that I think men spend a great deal of time not thinking about. Um, And there's just blood covering her hands in the shower and it just, it just twists that gaze right on its head. And I think it's a brilliant way to start the movie and say, this is what you're in for, guys.
3: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So Carrie gets her period, and she's a senior in high school, has no idea what's going on. And um, all the other girls react by throwing tampons at her and tormenting her in the shower. The most interesting thing I thought about that is how shocked, especially the teacher is that comes in um, and sort of rescues Carrie from this attack. She's shocked and frustrated and angry that Carrie has no idea what's going on with her own body. And meanwhile, she thinks she's dying.
0: It's, uh, yeah, I, I think it's unsettling for them to be in, in the presence of someone who does not have anxiety about menstruation and growing up. And I think that promotes their, their anger towards her.
1: Well, anyone who's out of step in high school is going to be uh, problematic, I think, for other kids in high school. And I think uh, the naivete of the carry figure is uh, not met with sympathy by people, but it's met with hatred because they're uncomfortable with the idea that someone could be from this very, very different culture while their culture has been growing in its own sort of organic way. And she is so othered by these other teen girls that she's met with hatred and she's met with violence right off the bat. And it kind of, at one point in our lives, whether we're a guy or a gal, we've all been in Carrie's shoes. And I think right from that moment, we all have that pang of of uncomfortableness of associating with this girl who's so um, outcast by her fellow high schoolers
0: yeah and I I think that's where the frustration of the other kids comes in is like I figured it out like I already suffered through this why can't she get it together
3: one of the other things about a lot of teen movies that I really love is how um, whether metaphorically or not high school is basically related to a form of hell
1: you know But further to that point, one of the interesting things, I've seen Carrie a number of times, and and it's always very effective, whether you find it cheeky and campy or whether you find it uh, incredibly, horrifically insightful in this kind of ecstatic truth sort of way. Um, I think one of the things about the beginning of Carrie, maybe the first half hour, is it's really not a high school movie, it's a women in prison movie. Because you've got these girls you've got the the classic women in prison trope of the sexy shower scene of the humiliation you've got the forced um, workout of the girls when they're forced to uh, you know atone for the sin of of um... there's the woman in charge exactly and 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 you have this whole thing of who's the prison matron maybe Carrie's mom is the prison matron in her way There's
0: a lot of slapping
1: yes, lots of slapping <laughs> it's not really a high school movie at the beginning and then you go into the makeover scene and the prom scene and all these kind of comfortable things but it really shocks you in the beginning and I think that's one of the strengths of the movie and I think that's why it resonates with people.
0: Hmm. But in addition to high school being hell there is this potential of high school of elevating you and you know if you rise in the ranks and become popular and become the prom queen you know things will be okay and things will be right and you're you know previous life will be corrected so that's also really interesting like the potential of it
3: since you guys have brought up the prom and the sort of familiar tropes of high school and let's talk a little bit about how this is a particularly american horror movie kate your specialty is world horror cinema correct yes There's something about Carrie that captures this American sensibility from the 70s. You know, there's the Christianity, there's the prom, there's popularity. This, like you said, Cassidy, the American dream of like getting to the top of your social clique, um, rising out of your ranks. Um, So it wasn't very popular overseas, was it?
1: No, it's well, I don't know about the box office popularity. But one of the interesting things is one of the first ways I look at a movie is I kind of look at its original form. And then I see who knocked it off and what did they knock off about it? Like, what were the resonant themes in this movie? And one of the interesting things about Carrie, as opposed to, say, The Exorcist or, you know, a movie like Mad Max, is that there are virtually no foreign knockoffs of it. There's no Turkish Carrie, you know? Um, There's no Italian Carrie. It's a movie that really had to take place in the Petri dish of Americana. And... I think there are a number of factors that add to that. Uh, I think our school system is unique uh, in the kind of world landscape. I I think it is rather prison-like in its way. I think there's not a lot of mobility. I think you're kind of stuck someplace with these people that you either like or more likely loathe. And you adapt to that scenario, and you have this prom ritual that becomes this sort of womanhood you know, blossoming ideal thing that's sort of your Mm pre-wedding. And um, I think that's uniquely American. And I don't think there are a lot of resonant themes for people to sort of capitalize on overseas. And I think that's, to me, one of the things that makes Carrie really cool. And it's one of the things that makes it a movie that I kind of want to watch over and over again, because it's unique to this country. I think there's if I was a teenager in 1976, that would have been the most horrifying movie I could watch. I have a feeling that it would be like when I watched uh, Welcome to the Dollhouse. I don't mm-hmm. know if anybody, any of you oh, remember yeah. that one. Yes. Um, I, I watched that movie when I was 17, and that was a mistake. <laughs> so uh, I, I think Carrie is very much that same kind of of, of horror and that, that mirror that you look into.
3: Yeah, because it very much resonates with your adolescence and growing up. I mean... To what we were talking about in the shower scene, Carrie gets her period and it's almost like her own body is trying to kill her. You know, her body is um, this mysterious thing and becoming a woman is so foreign to her. So it's almost no wonder that it kind of gives her special powers she never knew she had. Mm
2: -hmm.
0: In addition to the feeling of her body being out of control, she has this incredible power and she starts to rein it in and the way it's mostly illustrated is with her relationship with her mother. Uh, so maybe we can talk about that for a moment.
3: Yes. Um, yeah. Carrie's relationship with her mom is um, fascinating. I mean, first off, Piper Laurie, who you know many may know from Twin Peaks, um, is phenomenal in this as the evangelist. Um, you know, fire-haired a uh, religious woman who uh thinks the reason Carrie got her period is because she sinned and she has to pray that away um it's um obviously a very abusive relationship you know we we f- we feel for Carrie at the same time like i think one of my favorite scenes
0: is Carrie with her mom right before the prom because it does feel really authentic and it's not just you know this crazy mother with her daughter like it felt like a like my mom, like anyone's mom, just stay home with me because they will make fun of you. I want to protect you. I want you to stay safe in my home and not grow up and not go out into
1: this world. And I found that really touching. That's actually super interesting because the three kind of heavies of the movie are Chris... Played by Nancy Allen, the super sex pot kind of high school girl. The popular
3: girl. Exactly,
1: the slutty popular girl. Uh, John Travolta was Billy in his sweat hog days. And um, ironically, the performances of Nancy Allen, John Travolta, and Piper Laurie, when they were acting in the film, they thought the movie was a parody. They thought it was a parody of teenage horror films. So they thought they were so over the top and so absurd that no one would ever be horrified by them. They thought it was purely for camp value and melodrama value. Huh. But that's also interesting because Brian De Palma, uh, as a director, um, not always an incredibly successful director. Um, when, when he gets it good, he's real good. And when he gets it bad, he's real bad. And there was a film that came out in the 80s called Raising Cain. Um, I don't know if anybody here is familiar with that, uh, starring John Lithgow. And the infamous story about *Raising Kane* is that during, at Cannes on the panel, John Lithgow was telling everyone how this is this incredibly dramatic tale, and and you know it's a horrific thriller, and yet the marketing department at the studio who was releasing *Raising Kane* was marketing it as a campy. <laughs> Parodic comedy because De Palma's direction had gone so far past home base that they couldn't sell it anymore as a thriller. So I think the beauty of those performances is that depending on where you cast your eyes, you can see it as campy melodrama or you can see it as something you know dead serious by the end.
3: Yeah, and this movie seems to fall, and Carrie seems to fall um, almost perfectly in between those two things. I mean, there are moments of Carrie that are so funny um, and so, you know, the opposite of scary. Just, you know, any other teen movie. And then there are, of course, moments that are absolutely horrifying. And I actually found the scenes between Carrie and her mother to be so terrifying. I don't know if it's just the idea of having this person who is the closest person in your life to you tell you that you're the devil and tell you that the things that are you're going through are not normal and shouldn't be happening to you it's because of it's laying guilt it's all things that you did wrong or you know just the fact that she tries to kill her at the end sure that's a thing (laughs) (laughs) i i just feel like the
0: mother is just scared of being a woman she's scared of femininity and like the potential of being a woman you know Pregnancy, menstruation, all that is just unbelievable to her. So she ties it up in this fanatic, fanatical Christianity.
1: It's interesting that that character is kind of a foil. There's a foil in the story with the kind gym teacher, which is... Mm -hmm. I, I think like all an of, alternative mother to Carrie. Exactly, and and is somewhat ironic given my own experiences with gym teachers. Okay. But uh, that character is played by an actress named Betty Buckley, and in that okay. aforementioned 1988 um, musical, she is uh, an actress. She plays Carrie's mom. Interesting. So the
3: actress oh, who plays wow. the savior
1: plays the mom in the musical.
3: I don't know. I kind of felt like their relationship was almost selfish. Um, yeah, she was sort of forcing her way
0: into Carrie's life. Yeah, um, You know, just put on a little makeup and like, how are you doing at this prom? It's going to change your life. It's almost like she was trying
3: to fix her adolescence mm-hmm. through Carrie. Yeah, I mean, we... She's definitely shown as this positive character um, who is nice to Carrie and you know sort of treats her like a daughter, but um, I think it mostly comes out of feeling you know identifying with Carrie and feeling this guilt and acting on it in kind of a selfish way so she ends up feeling better about herself so um, the first time I saw this, I was actually surprised that she also dies at the end. you know you'd think that she would be spared because she's the one that sort of took pity on Carrie, but I think um, while it came from a good place, her pity for Carrie was a little misguided. Should
0: we talk about the other two girls some more Chris and Sue
3: Chris was fascinating to me, particularly in the scene where she's trying to get Billy, uh, John Travolta, to agree to this plot um, uh, with the pig's blood at the prom, and she is going down on him in the car, somehow also saying his name at the same time, and then...
1: (laughs) She's a ventriloquist. (laughs)
3: And then her words, like her her midcoital words, are "I hate Carrie White," and I think her hatred for Carrie actually kind of turns her on a little bit.
0: Yeah, remember the way she licks her lips right before she pulls the
3: cord? Mm-hmm. Like,
0: there's definitely something there.
3: And the like weird sexual excitement when Billy is slaughtering the pig to carry out oh, their plan. Yeah. Chris very much fascinated me.
1: <laughs> Interestingly, the actress who played Chris, uh, Nancy Allen, went on to marry the director, Brian De Palma, in the late 70s. And she was um, solely acting in Brian De Palma movies where she's in very uncomfortable roles. Like, she's in uh, Dress to Kill. I don't know if anybody's familiar with that movie. Uh, yeah. But um, she plays a very sexualized role in that. And um, there's an SNL skit um, from 1981 where they talk about how Brian De Palma is just ripping off Hitchcock which I think is interesting because to me he always seems very Italianate. Like I don't see a ton of Hitchcock. I see a ton of Italy in him but uh, they, they have this sketch called The Clams where it's Brian De Palma's The Clams which is a uh, parody of the birds and it's <laughs> it's of course starring Nancy Allen and his wife gets killed in every movie in some kind of brutal way so there's a lot of weird kind of uncomfortable uh, projection in that role. It's like projection and projection is a hall of mirrors because it's her projection of the hatred of Carrie White and it's his sexual projection. Oh. And,
3: and if we're not all uncomfortable right now,
2: then
1: <laughs> I'll have to work harder.
3: <laughs> um, Why do you guys think, though, it means so much to Chris that you know, Carrie White get her due it seems like there's revenge on top of revenge on top of revenge in this movie.
1: I think it's it's. I think if you look at the whole movie about being, if Carrie is not a joiner, if she's not a joiner, and and high school is about joining and and finding yourself in these tribes. And her absolute refusal, whether through naivete or through stubbornness, because I think there's a certain stubbornness to that character. You know, as you see her interactions with her mother, no, I'm going to prom, no, I'm sewing my dress, fuck you, I'm showing my dirty pillows. (laughs) You know, there's there's this very rebellious streak in this young woman, and I think that that makes a woman like Chris, who clearly is not enjoying this, the one time you see her having sex, she don't give a goddamn. Mm -hmm. (laughs) She wants to get her way. You know, and if you see that and you see this woman and if you view her through the idea that she has sacrificed so much and she's doing so much to be popular in school, and Carrie's just been like, I'm doing my thing, then you get this very angry character. Mm-hmm. I think I think she comes from a place of, of anger at, at someone who just don't give a damn. Right. Yeah, I,
0: I think it goes back to that first shower scene. Mm-hmm. I, I wanted to talk about, so there are two uh, male characters. There's Billy and uh, Tommy. Is mm-hmm. that the other one? Um, and so during this viewing, I was trying to figure out if they're used or if they're sort of a channel of action for Chris and Sue. Because in Chris's case, you know, she uses Billy uh, to get the blood. He sets it up. And then Tommy is Sue's boyfriend, and she gets him to ask Carrie to the prom. Mm-hmm. So in essence, in order to do bad or good towards Carrie, they use men.
1: I think it's a cool inversion, frankly, because I I think the the cool thing, one of the very cool things about Carrie is that it's a woman's movie. It's a woman's movie written... From a novel by a man, directed by a man, coming from a place of probably fear and anxiety towards mm-hmm.
3: women, yeah that fear but I, unknown,
1: but I think it gets to a certain truth of the mysteries of how women women are very machiavellian when they're in <laughs> high school you know they don't they don't go and punch each other on the playground they'll go and like burn your picture and like give you the ashes in your locker <laughs> you know like like women are very manipulative at that age and i think one of the cool things is through that lens of a man's eye they get to that and these two men the the tommy character is like the pretty, dipshitty kind of, you know, like, like he- heroine. And then Billy is is the, you know, the, the, the hooker or, you know, in the Western or, or something of that nature. And uh, they're, they're both... You could make the whole movie without them. It doesn't matter what their characters mm-hmm. are, frankly. You, you, it's about the women. And, and these guys are just sort of a cog in the, the plan that turns it in a certain direction. I think that's maybe... Uh, inadvertently subversive, but I think it's incredibly subversive, and I think it's one of the things that makes the movie cool.
3: Yeah, I agree. I mean, what I love about Carrie is that it seems to set up so many teen movie tropes that we see in, you know, the teen movie blitz that happened throughout the 80s, 90s, 2000s when we were all coming of age and being influenced by movies, you know, the prom climax, the, you know, the prom is the most important thing. And then you have the guy who is bringing the outcast to prom, whether it's for charity um, or for a bet or for a dare. And ultimately, what all of these movies are is an exploration of the awakening of the female character, of the outcast or of the popular girl and sort of their budding heads. But it never really has anything to do with the guy and how he grows and learns. Well,
0: sometimes he transforms because he realizes that he likes the nerdy girl after all. When well, she takes her glasses
1: off, oh, it. It. she becomes blonde and glasses less. <laughs> or really just takes
3: out her ponytail. Well, you can't I so him not really that not expect to like her with glasses. <laughs> I know, glasses suck.
1: <laughs> but it's good, you take off the glasses, and everything has this cool, like just Jake in sort of Vaseline lens. It's brilliant. <laughs>
3: Um, I want to get back to the prom scene a little bit because in my mind, it is the ultimate prom scene. I mean, uh, De Palma in an interview said that your prom is like your first sexual experience. And I think uh, after watching Carrie, that is terrifying. Um, But (laughs) Pauline Kael wrote in her review of Carrie... De Palma is a master sadist for the way that he plays out the prom scene. It is slow and languid and trance-like. And you get to experience the like dizzying happiness of this moment in Carrie's life that is possibly the happiest moment of her life. And you know that some shit is about to go down. You know that it's <laughs> going to go horribly wrong. And you just want to turn it off to stop. <laughs> I know. You want to end the movie. You want to just eject it once she gets elected prom queen. But... Um, the whole, you know, dreamlike uh, gauziness of that scene and how slow it goes. There's the scene where she and Tommy are dancing and it is spinning you around. And at first, it's romantic, and then it makes you want to throw up. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I just think this scene is the ultimate. Absolutely. I I don't even know if I like the rest
0: of the movie all that much. But <laughs> that scene really stays with me. It's, it's really beautiful and perfect.
1: I think one of the things that's beautifully done in that particular scene is I think that sequence is very feminine uh, in that, you know, Tommy. There's these lingering close-ups with this beautiful color gel, and how just angelic, and his curls, and his blondness, and you know, there's this lingering gaze on him, and he's he's a cipher. There's really not much to Tommy. He wrote a poem, and he's not an asshole. He didn't even you
3: really know, really write that poem. That's his character.
1: Right? Yeah, he may or may not have written it. <laughs> so, you know, the, he's he's this cipher, and I think it's cool that you know, in that moment you are with Carrie. You're never with Tommy. You don't... He's he's a thing that she's projecting onto all these sort of desires and, you know, her budding femininity and, and certainly all the taboos that her mother has brought her up with are sort of then in this luminescent sequence where she's with him and she's alone with him the whole time. The, the kindly gym teacher pops by for a little hug. Mm-hmm. But, you know... I, The cool thing about the movie is you never understand Tommy. He's not a person. Mm -hmm. You don't know anything about him other than he seems to be a decent dude, probably. And he's maybe hot. (laughs) That's really his character.
3: Yet no matter who anybody is and what their relationship to Carrie ultimately was, they all end up dying, for the most part, with the exception of one, Sue, who strikes me a little bit, in the same way that the gym teacher does, and that she ends up sort of uh, connecting with Carrie and feeling her pain a little bit. She sort of realizes that, yes, I, I don't think she feelings. does. I, sh- I think she just, like, no? feels
0: guilty because generally she's maybe a pretty good person. Um, the gym teacher shakes her after the tampon incident and, like, tells her, what are you doing? As if, like, she knows that generally this is not a girl who makes fun of other kids. She's like popular in that way that, you know, she doesn't offend anyone.
1: Right. She's not so much doing it because of any innate um, caring for Carrie as a human being, but caring about that tribal sort of, in high school, I am perceived in this way, and now I am no longer perceived in this way. What can I do? Take my boyfriend, please. Mm -hmm. (laughs) In this sort of, you know, Henny Youngman way.
3: (laughs) Her surviving is sort of interesting to me that somebody you know, somebody has to survive. Somebody has to survive because we have to get the awesome stinger at the end of the movie. But in a way that it's, it's kind of a worse fate for Sue because she's going to be struck by these images of these horrible things that happened to her. Oh,
0: no, no. She's too young. She won't remember.
1: <laughs> <laughs> None of us remember things that happened when we were 18. No. <laughs> Yeah, the, the the stingers actually are great. Um, that ending sequence with the hand coming up from beyond the grave is actually credited with inspiring, uh, sort of twisting off that whole slasher, like beyond the grave, like, oh, he's not really dead, double tap him kind of thing that happens. Um, for instance, at the end of uh, the first Friday the 13th movie where the Jason comes up out of the water into the boat, that, um, that ending of Carrie is credited with sort of being the template uh, timing wise that all of those worked off of. Mm -hmm. And also you've got these great musical stabs, especially at the beginning, um, that are very uh, reminiscent of Psycho, I think it actually is the exact score from Psycho. It is. It's, it's those stabs and it's the Bates high School, Of course. Mm-hmm. And actually, um, Bernard Herrmann, who wrote the score for Psycho, was initially signed on to do the score for Carrie, but he passed away prior to being able to compose it. And Pino Nagio, who's who um, was known for these very soupy, beautiful sort of Uh, horror scores, wound up working with Brian De Palma a number of times over his career. But he, uh, in homage to Herman and in homage to Psycho, uh, worked
3: in those sort of ideas into the music that he wrote for the the film. And the music was such a wonderful part of this film, especially how it, you know, lulls you into a false sense of uh, calm and security Especially during that stinger. And one thing that I love about that scene, you know, where uh, Carrie's hand shoots out of the grave, is uh, Sissy Spacek insisted that she herself be the hand that comes out. Um, they were originally going to get her uh, body double to do it, but she insisted that it must be her. So she actually had her husband um, who well, I was. De Palma insisted that it was her husband who, her husband was the <laughs> art director of yeah. the film, so he buried her in a box oh under a bunch of pumice stones in that scene, and then you know she was down there for a little while while they were setting it up, and uh, you know, finally she got to have that moment of glory. It's an incredibly effective scene.
0: I was going to bring up uh, something that one of our listeners, uh, Galen Adair, uh, suggested. Well, he has this theory about a character that we haven't quite addressed yet, Norma.
3: Um, Played by PJ Souls. Yes. <laughs> of Rock and Roll High School. At Halloween.
0: His theory is that her power is in the red hat. <laughs> and that the reason she dies is because the red hat falls off.
1: Well, she gives her red hat to her boyfriend in that one scene when he asks to be on the prom committee. So perhaps he is channeling that uh, that That power for that scene
3: (laughs) my favorite though is when she's getting her hair done and the red hat is on top of the um salon dryer thing and like that was ridiculous
0: i just feel like all the cool kids in this movie are so not cool that's (laughs) high school (laughs) isn't that how any teen movie is really
1: I feel like I've seen others where the cool kids are cooler. Okay, when I was in high school, we used to wear like six pairs of scrunch socks on top of each other so that you had to buy your shoes two sizes too big.
3: That's not cool. I, I also really identified with the, uh, the, the wearing of uh, overalls throughout this movie because that was totally my style in high school. Overalls every day. Just like PJ Souls.
1: The short shorts, a gem. Did you wear those?
3: No, never wore those. That was very male gazy. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, even though this movie is very feminine and, you know, it definitely explores a lot about um, what it is to be an adolescent girl and what it is to go through to, you know, come of age, um, the gaze of the camera was incredibly creepy at times. You know, there is the opening scene in The Shower where it's sort of going slowly over her skin. Leering leering is the best word for it. And even though it does have that great turn where she gets her period, it still, you know, draws you in like that. In the gym scene, it's going very leeringly across.
1: We don't need, like, nine rounds of them doing exercises. Now push-ups, all right. (laughs) I, I think in that way, um, one of the interesting things is uh, the remake of Carrie that's due out later this year is by Kimberly Pierce, uh, who directed Boys Don't Cry, uh, which had a lot of, well, obviously, as it's, its central theme, had, had gender uh, at, its, at its crux. Um, one of the things about having a movie like Carrie directed by a man known for his misogyny... Um, certainly on-screen misogyny, if anybody's seen Body Double with the drill coming up through the woman, that's nasty. Oh, ah, Yeah, it's a nasty movie. Um, De Palma was, did nasty things to women on film. Um, but I think having someone like that and having someone like Stephen King and the story that you were saying about him being uncomfortable with young women, um, making this movie, I think it made it so much more poignant for people of both genders. To come at it because I think you have men coming at it from a point of the mystery of femininity, the mystery mm-hmm. of adolescence, the untouchability of women,
3: like the fear of the period as a thing that can cause women to become monstrous and have it telekinetic just powers. So
1: emotional,
3: <laughs> <laughs> and then you know, shit blows up. It hits the wall.
1: But um, you know, I think it's interesting that you have. I think the success of Carrie... It's kind of like I've heard critics say about H.P. Lovecraft. You can't have H.P. Lovecraft without him being a racist. You can't have somebody who's into um, this cosmic horror, this horror of the unknown, without him being a little fucked up in the head. You know, you you can't have a movie like Carrie without it being about um, men being a little uncomfortable with women. Mm -hmm. It's an uncomfortable movie, and I think that's why it's successful.
3: Uncomfortable, but I still find a lot of power in it. I mean... Mm -hmm. um, The menstruation imagery is so rife throughout. I mean, when she's drenched in blood at the end, you know, the screen itself even goes red as, you know, her becoming a woman is the source of her power. I mean, it does maybe stem from this place of uncomfortableness, but I kind of like it. I kind of like the imagery that comes from it. I mean, uh, you know, growing up and becoming a woman as seen through teen films, is supposed to be this terrifying thing. And this is, you know, even though it's ultimately tragic, Carrie is sort of, you know, taking control of her body and herself and her situation.
1: Well, I think one of the articles um, that uh, you ladies had been talking about was uh, Kimberly Pierce talking about how she saw Carrie... Not necessarily as a horror movie and a tragedy, mm-hmm. but as a superhero origin story, yeah. hmm, where like it's that. this woman who, um, through this strife and through this horrible situation, comes to find that she possesses great power, and ultimately, it you know, it's a ruinous end, but... At the end, Carrie is the HBIC. She's the head bitch <laughs> in charge of that town. She wrecks that town. That is her decision to do that. And I, I think that's something that, you know, um, certain viewers may find it scary um, and intimidating. And other viewers, you know, I remember the first time I saw Carrie, and I'm going, F, yes. <laughs> Finally. You know, it's, it's very... There's something empowering about that. Yeah. yeah.
0: There, there are so many movies where men you know, aren't even judged. (laughs) Like, male characters cause so much destruction, and they're celebrated. Boys will be boys. And it's awesome. And, like, yes, when I watched Carrie, I was, like, there were definitely moments where I was uncomfortable, you know? Like, she killed so many people, and, like, did she really have to set the school on fire? But, yeah, when you look at it from another perspective, like, she had been beaten down, and there had been so much damage done to her, she needed to take control, and yes, that meant some innocent
1: people died, but... No one's innocent in high school. It's okay.
3: So what are your guys' hopes for the, for the remake that's coming?
0: Well, as someone who recently finished the book, I hope it incorporates uh, the ending from the book a little more. Because mm-hmm. um, it's different? Yes. The uh, trailer
1: would have us believe that it does. Oh, really? Yeah, the trailer is uh, gives you a sense that there's a lot more expansiveness to the, the ending of the story maybe than there is. Maybe I saw the wrong trailer. I'll, I'll send you a link. Okay.
0: <laughs> but yeah, and supposedly it also focuses more on the three girls as they grow and like what happens with them. Whereas I feel like De Palma's movie maybe emphasizes a little too much Carrie's relationship with her mother, which is definitely you know, an important point in the book, but I want to see the three girls.
1: For me, uh, I actually, my, my stance on horror remakes is like, honestly, I don't really have a problem with it. I think you should really, it's, if there's an interesting story to tell, you know, we don't sit there and say like, oh, they're remaking Frankenstein, mm-hmm. or oh, they're remaking Dracula, because they're so in our public domain as people that uh, we don't worry about it. So I think now it's, you've got Leatherface and Jason and Michael Myers and Carrie are, are our new Dracula and Frankenstein and all these other stories. So I'm cool with it. Um, one of the things I hope is I really would like to see what a woman's look at this story is from the inside as opposed to the outside of, of you know being nervous about or being, having anxieties about... Um, towards women I would like to see what it's like from the inside and um Chloe Moritz was actually in let me in which is the Mm -hmm. um uh let the right one in remake and that has a lot of interesting sort of gender stuff in it so I would be interested to see sort of what direction that goes in
3: yeah so uh right now I was thinking maybe we could open it up to our audience to see if uh anybody has any questions comments or observations that they would like to uh talk a little bit about, or ask of us?
2: So maybe it's because I grew up in a religious family, but you guys didn't t- touch at all on the religious imagery, which is really what struck me this time. And it does fit a little bit. I mean, if you buy uh, into the idea, the very well-substantiated idea, I would say that, that religion, a lot of what it's done is kept down women. Then you have this mother who's keeping down her daughter using all this, using religion, and... Uh, keeping down both her sexuality and her mind, the power of her mind. But um, there's just so much there that, like the blood thing, comes from it means sin. And there's uh, when the mom dies, she's uh, in the shape of a, of a of Jesus on the cross. On yeah. the cross, and they, they and it's the same like head to the side image that they have um, all in the particular painting in the house that they keep showing. The Tommy Ross character is sort of like Judas. They make a big deal out of him kissing her before um, she gets the blood on her. Um, Mm -hmm. So that's my long rambling question.
3: Um, Yeah, when the mom dies, it's almost like, or when the mom is approaching Carrie to kill her, it's almost this sort of sacrificial moment where she has her arms out. Like she's, you know, the savior coming to sacrifice Carrie for religious reasons. Um, But I guess what I make of... The religion, the use of religion in this movie is that De Palma's sort of anti-religion. You know, it seems very much I, like I think he's that goes back to Stephen King. Oh, Stephen King's anti-religion. Well,
1: the interesting thing about that um, that figure that's in the um, little kind of um, you know chastity closet is uh, that's not Christ; it's Saint Sebastian. Um, who's pierced with all the arrows, and that's why she's at the end, she's pierced with all the arrows, and it's certainly a Christ-like pose that she's in with the arms spread and then kind of cocked, Um, but the interesting thing about St. Sebastian, and um, disclaimer, I was not raised Catholic, the interesting thing about (laughs) St. Sebastian is just uh, as a sort of visual figure. He's one of the most frequently male sexualized hmm. saints. Um, I have heard from numerous internet sources uh, that, um, you know, certainly the figure of that, that beautiful male torso, and, and, and he's just draped um, around the groin, is something that a lot of people at a very early age found to be very arousing. So I think it's interesting that St. Sebastian is the figure that they pick as opposed to the Christ figure, because he is someone who I think for a lot of people represents um, early age sexuality.
0: And, okay, did you guys find uh, the mother's death cry orgasmic? Yes, like, or it's? Much so.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
3: Definitely. Yes.
0: I just wonder how intentional that was.
1: I
3: would say probably very intentional. I would think so. I mean, it's, I would this, think so. it's this moment that she... It's, this, you know, supposedly the second moment in her life that she's had this release where something that mm-hmm. seems so wrong and, and sacrilegious and terrifying excites her. You know, mm-hmm. when her husband comes home and, you know, for all intents and purposes, rapes her and, you know, it results in Carrie. You know, she, she liked whiskey on his breath. She liked... Having uh, premarital His hands sex. All over her, yeah. Right, and I think when she is sort of herself being sacrificed uh, to God, there's some kind of thrill in it for her. Mm-hmm.
1: Sure, and there's um, the idea that the marriage to God, you know, the metaphorical marriage to God, is being consummated in the moment of death.
3: Mm-hmm. Possibly. Kate, I actually have a question for you. Is um, The horror genre mm-hmm. is usually one that tends to go more into male interest than female interest just because in horror movies there's so much violence against women and things like that but for you how did you get into horror and you know where does that interest come
1: oh gosh for me um I, honestly I started watching horror movies at a real young age I, I just always liked it I always liked the thrill I liked the taboo for me I, I know there 's a lot of misogyny in horror films, but frankly, I find a lot more misogyny in your average um, uh, romantic comedy than I do in your average horror film because an average horror film is at least showing women having sex, and an average uh, an average romantic comedy is 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 punishing me into this state where I have to compromise my beliefs in order to, you know, settle down and have children that I don't want to have and have a relationship that I don't want to have. So I'd rather at least see, you know, tits and blood in the process to to sum it up.
3: (laughs) All right. Um, well, on that note, um, I think <laughs> we'll, um, we will uh, wrap up this podcast. Um, this has been Bonnie and Maude. Huge thank you to uh, Tenebris Kate for joining us for this discussion. Thank you, Karen. guys. This was a blast. Um, thank you. Thanks to Videology for hosting us. And thanks to our producers, Amber Hall and Matt Carman. I'm Eleanor Kagan. I'm Xenia Yarosh. You can subscribe to Bonnie and Maude on iTunes.
0: Uh, you can also find us at BonnieandMod.com and on Facebook and Twitter.
3: And on Tumblr.
0: (laughs) You can also email us at bonnieandmaud at
3: gmail.com. Thanks. Thank you guys so much for coming and listening to this. We really appreciate you guys all being here.
1: Yes. Thank you.